Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Good evening. I want to talk tonight about transforming suffering into happiness. Sound pretty good? (laughs) Ready? Actually, uh, on many levels, that's what we're doing here. We open up to everything inside, willing to see our demons and our fears and our confusions. And just by virtue of holding it all with a a very kind, loving awareness, um, we are very clearly and um, powerfully transforming our suffering into um, at least compassion, hopefully. The other choice is just more suffering, transforming our suffering into more suffering. Not recommended, but that's one of the the powers of of, of practice to be able to um, uh, to not be afraid to touch it all and to uh, give ourselves the courage. I spoke about the last talk um, and the um, uh, the wisdom and the the love and compassion that can meet all of those difficult states. But there's another way that we are doing just that magical alchemical transformation of suffering into happiness in a, in a very uh, simple but profound understanding of how we meet each moment. <clears throat> In um, Buddhist psychology, and as the Buddha taught, um, every moment there is a particular flavor to experience. Vedana, it's been, I think, mentioned here before, uh, just um, slightly, obliquely. Vedana, the pleasantness unpleasantness or neutrality of the moment's experience. That pretty much covers the territory. And how we relate to any one of those three feeling tones, as it's sometimes called, those flavors of experience, will determine whether we're sowing the seeds for more dukkha, more suffering, or more um, happiness, wholesomeness. Usually, if we're not mindful, or most people in this world, when they meet a moment of pleasantness, the typical response is, oh, I like this, and I want more. Or, I like this, and I don't want it to go away. And so we grasp onto the pleasant. If it's an unpleasant moment, the typical response, unless you're very attentive and understand how this all works, the response is aversion. I don't like this, I want it to go away, I want it to stop. Whether you're here on retreat or uh, in daily life, that's the typical response. And that contraction of aversion um, is suffering. And if the moment is neither pleasant nor unpleasant, uh, it usually doesn't 
grab our attention and we generally miss it, space out on it. Ignore it. And that is um, a moment of delusion or ignorance. And in the, the Buddhist teachings, those three reactions are the roots of suffering. Grasping, attachment, greed, any kind of movement to possess or hold on to, aversion, hatred, or delusion, ignorance. Those are the big three. Greed, hatred, delusion. Same as attachment, aversion, ignorance. Those three responses are said to be the seeds of suffering. Because in those responses, there is a contraction away from experience and generally an identification with the experience. Somehow we want to possess, that's mine. I I don't want this. Or, oh, look at my uh, (coughs) lust or anger. Those are called the, uh, the, the three poisons in one list. If we're mindful, then we have another option. And so when the moment is pleasant, rather than wanting to possess or grasp it, we can appreciate it fully, but without that contraction. Doesn't mean, oh, I shouldn't let myself appreciate the pleasant moment. But without that extra contraction, then it can just fill us with um, um, appreciation, gratitude, um, delight. There's a difference between attachment and appreciation. So that non-greed, not grasping, is an act of opening and allowing for things to be here and leave as they do, which they do. That non-greed is expressed in both the, uh, the act of letting go, not holding on, and even uh, a further uh, expression of that non-greed, um, a generous heart. If the moment is unpleasant, instead of recoiling and pushing away, it's possible, and I would imagine that you've seen this for yourself a number of times in these days, at times to not contract, but to open and say, okay, this is what's happening now. Have you noticed that as it's been said, oh, it's like this. Oh, um, aversion is like this. Oh, fear is like this. Oh, wanting is like this. And that non-aversion, non-hatred, the more positive expression is a friendly or kind or loving heart. A source of true well-being. And when the moment is neutral, and there is not that spacing out, but there's clarity and connection with what's here. There is also the understanding when there's clarity that this is not my um, 
experience to control or create. I don't have to blame myself for it. I don't have to take credit for it. We see the selfless nature of the process with that clarity. And that is non-delusion. So those are the three sources of the three seeds of happiness in the Buddhist teachings. Non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, or put more positively, generosity, letting go, both in that non-greed, loving kindness, and clarity, wisdom. Those are the three seeds of happiness and well-being. So it's all in how you meet the moment. Not that you can or even need to try to change the flavor of the moment. The moment is what it is. But in our response, we are either sowing the seeds of suffering or happiness. And you can probably guess what the secret ingredient is that allows you to have that choice to not respond with the, the typical contracted reaction. And that is mindfulness. That moment of mindfulness gives you a choice to not have that typical response and to instead sow the seeds of true well-being. So it's right there in each moment that we have a choice whether we are creating suffering or creating happiness. And the interesting thing is that even when you are caught in the reaction of wanting or aversion or confusion, delusion, the moment that you realize it mindfully, you are freeing the mind. Just as the Buddha said, noticing the mind of ill will as the mind of ill will. It's just another moment of mindfulness. Notice the, the lusting mind as a mind filled with lust. Not bad boy or bad girl, but just, oh, and here's the mind that has that arising in it. That is another moment of freedom. So that's the wonderful thing. It's never too late to apply mindfulness to your experience. Isn't that wonderful? It's never too late because there's just the next moment to give you another shot at being free. So I want to talk tonight about uh, these three pairs, greed, hatred, delusion, and non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion, both in the moment on the cushion and just how we are cultivating that in every moment and it starts to express itself to uh, develop those qualities um, in a very powerful way. Grasping, attachment, wanting. Have you noticed when for you it arises while you're here? Just think of the times today that the pleasant moment turned into grasping or maybe the boring moment turned into wanting. Don't judge yourself for it. It's just part of being human. But if you can see and notice, particularly when you might have a challenge to, um, to get caught in that grasping, you might make it just a, an extra, a little extra credit assignment. You know, maybe for you when you um, go down to the dining room and there's delicious food 
set in front of you, the heart can open. Oh, how wonderful. Oh, all this love that went into this food. Or, oh my goodness, I hope there's enough for me. You know, or will there be seconds, whatever it is. <clears throat> yeah, it's, you've got a lot of company if you have those thoughts. Or maybe for you, it's um, in walking practice and there's somebody near you who's walking so impeccably and you say, gosh, I wish I could walk like that. You know, there's the wanting mind. You know, often comes with the comparing mind. Just to notice it and start to make it a, a, an interesting exploration in your practice. <clears throat> often comes when things are really going well you know, oh, that was a very cool meditation. Have you seen that? You might somehow by amazing grace fall into a meditation where it's like, wow, it doesn't matter if the bell never rings here. Amazing. I, I remember actually on my, my first retreat, um, my very first retreat, it, uh, it, this is in Great Barrington in 1974. And, you know, I was, I had been practicing diligently and really in, in, in love with the whole idea of practice. But this, it was the first time that I just fell into this magical groove where I was really there and it didn't matter if the bell never rang. It was like I was breathing in, the universe was breathing out. I was breathing out, the universe was breathing in. It was so amazing. And then it ended. And then the next time I sat down, how do I get back there? And then I didn't. And then the next time, and the next time, it went the same way. And I went into, I'll share with you a, an early retreat story. I went into um, the interview uh, a couple of days later um, and uh, said to Joseph, you know, I had it and then I lost it. And how do I get it back? <laughs> that was basically the, you know, my question. And Joseph shared with me um, uh, something from his, his own practice that I am so grateful for all these years. He, he writes about it in one of his books. He said, well, let me tell you about my practice. I, there was a time in, in uh, I was practicing in India uh, and just uh, months on end and I just f fell into this place just sitting and walking and I sat down and my body was like filled with light. My mind was so clear and it went on for some time. And then at some point I, he said I, I needed to go back to the States and, uh, and visit home and come back and, um, and knowing that I'd be coming back to India. He was in India for a period of um, about seven years practicing. And he said, I sat down and I remembered very well what it was like when I left. And I just waited for that magic moment experience. And he said, I sat down and I, my body, my mind was like mud and my body was like twisted steel. Those are the words that he used. And, and then... He said, I spent nearly two years trying to recapture that experience. And then he looked at me and he, these were his exact words. I was the dummy. I did it for you. You don't have to be the dummy. <laughs> I bowed. Thank you so much, Joseph. It really makes such a difference when you've had a, a sweet, delicious meditation and it's okay that it doesn't happen the next time. 
just a grace from God, from the gods, amazing grace, whatever you call it, from the Dharma. So to see that moment where you let go, where you actually can let go, where you can actually not just kind of trick yourself into letting go. Okay, I know letting go is good for me, so I'll just let go. (laughs) I'm letting go. You can't trick it because it knows, you know. You've got to truly allow and let go. And there's just such a freedom in that when you're able to genuinely give up the program and just allow for this moment to be the way it is. Letting go, this is the key to non-greed, not grasping. I'll read to you a passage I love. Some of you probably are familiar with it from Ajahn Sumedho on letting go. Ajahn Sumedho, he was, uh, I think Carol mentioned him the other night. Wonderful, uh, very wise um, uh, monastic, really the the senior American uh, Western monastic in, in the Ajahn Chah lineage. He says, the practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, let go. Rather than trying to develop this practice and then develop that and achieving this and go into that and understand this and read the suttas and study the Abhidhamma and then learn Pali and Sanskrit and then the Madhyamaka and the Prajnaparamita, get ordinations in the Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go, let go, let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) Just let go, oh yeah. And from that capacity to let go, we, we really feel how good it, it is, how good it feels to just be with this moment as it is. As a little exercise, I sometimes like to do exercises in, in talks so your, your body gets it besides your mind. Just try this, okay? Um, it, if you can, uh, sit up, you don't have to be um, stiff, but just uh, it helps to sit up as you do this. And imagine, what something that you really want that's out there in the future. And if you can reach far enough and touch it, you'll have instant gratification, okay? So just imagine something, maybe um, sleep tonight or uh, something else in your life that you really would love to happen. Okay, we can just play with this. So I'm gonna give you permission to think and fantasize, okay? And now, play along with me. You can open your eyes if you like. Keep your butt on the cushion or the chair, and I'd like you to really go for it and reach. Come on, if you, if you get it, you'll get instant gratification. It'll feel so good. And now notice how it feels right now. Oh, it's gonna be so good. And now you realize you can't hurry up the future. And so very slowly come back to this present moment and center. Can you feel the difference? As seductive as this is, it's really a drag. It seems like it's a good thing to do, but this is so much more home. 
and connected and where peace is found. Every moment you have an opportunity to come back and just connect with life as it is right now. And even if it isn't as pleasant or fascinating as your fantasies, it's not off balance. And there's a freedom in just allowing for this moment to be as it is. And the more you're able to do that, the more you're able to uh, let go in your life and the fullest expression of letting go, which is the generous heart. Because generosity is that letting go and also feeling a connection with others. How beautiful. It's the double payoff, the relinquishment of that holding on and the connection at the same time. The Buddha talked about this in one of his discourses. He says, when you're in the middle of a, a generous act, he recommends saying to yourself, oh, I'm being generous now. This is the Buddha's recommendation. He's not saying, check it out how generous I am. I'm a pretty generous guy. No, no, no. That, that's just identification with the experience. But to notice how good generosity feels as it moves through your, your being. Oh, it feels so good to share, to feel connected, to just see delight in, in another's face or to uh, feel like you are there in a supportive way. or to share something that's really of value to you and just see the face on somebody else. And this is the seed of caring, compassion, service. It feels good. As uh, Martin Seligman, the the father of uh, positive psychology says, I don't think I mentioned this last time. He says that the, the real happiness comes from identifying your particular gifts and sharing them in a spirit of contribution. What um, Shanti Deva says um, lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. Isn't that beautiful? into the wealth of giving to life. It's there every moment that you're mindful and it's a, um, it's a pleasant moment that you don't hold on. You are training your heart to feel the joy of letting go. Every single moment. Those are powerful seeds that you've been sowing. Okay, now on to the next. Non-hatred or non-aversion, or put more positively, a heart of kindness, loving kindness. Aversion contracts the heart and contracts the mind. We can feel so much justification. They deserve my ill will. They deserve my... um, Uh, They deserve retribution. They, whatever, uh, deserve um, what's coming to them. Um, But it really is painful. You know, we did the forgiveness a few days ago and that was just forgiveness for ourselves. But the same thing uh, applies when you're not holding on to... Um, ill will towards others, uh, there's a great relief and release. And sometimes you're not, you're not ready to let go of the ill will. And you, you can't bypass the hurt that perhaps needs to be processed. But to know that 
when you can let go of that ill will, you are the one that benefits. The, the famous image the Buddha gives of um, being angry and, and um, wanting to hurt someone is like, or wanting to see them suffer is like taking a hot coal and throwing it at the other person and not realizing you're the one that gets burned. Or uh, drinking poison and hoping they will get sick. It's poisonous to hold on to that anger and ill will. I love the line from uh, Desmond Tutu who says, who is the architect of the reconciliation after apartheid uh, and the healing of South Africa. He says this, this line, um, I love, forgiveness is the highest form of self-interest. I need to forgive so that my own anger and lust for revenge does not corrode my own being. In the moment of unpleasantness, if you can practice not pushing away and not feeling angry or unjustly treated by life, you are learning to forgive life in that moment. It's okay. Think of how many things you've learned by facing the difficulties in your life. And so the, the key to this non-hatred, non-aversion is a compassionate, first a compassionate holding when it's here, not judging it, but a, a kind of understanding, it's just part of being human and starting with friendliness towards ourselves. And for those who get caught in judging. Anybody ever get caught in judging here? If you don't, let me know because uh, judging is even at the third stage of enlightenment. Um, So it just means four stages, fourth stage you're fully enlightened. So if you still have judgment in the mind, you're, you're just no higher than third stage anyway. That's one way to think of it. But to deal with that judging mind, how can you deal with the judging mind? And I, I mentioned uh, one that uh, self-compassion practice. Here's another version of it that I, um, I often share. That was my own practice for, uh, for two years. Um, I, I don't think I did this. Uh, just imagine you're caught in a judging thought, okay? In fact, close your eyes and uh, Just think of your favorite judgments these days. (laughs) Or your uh, something where you got caught today. And as that thought arose or arises, just try this. Take your hand and put it on your cheek. And as if you were the kindest, wisest being recognizing as you caress or or tenderly feel your cheek, silently say in the kindest voice, oh, judging, judging, like it's okay, just judging. Just let yourself feel that. You can open your eyes. Can you feel the, the tenderness? That's how I recommend noticing the judging mind. And that was my main practice for two years, both on the cushion and in my daily life. And it wasn't like I did this every time. I did it a lot at the beginning or when I'd sense that I was losing contact with it. There's something about physically touching that brings, reminds you of that tenderness. But after a while, the tone in my mind was softer and kinder over that practice time. So that 
when I get caught in judging, it was kind of, it became exciting. It was like, oh, instead of adding another layer of judgment, oh, there you are judging again, you know. Oh, and now I just judge the judging again. There's no way out of that. Unless at some point you just notice, oh, and there's judging, it's okay. Then every moment that you notice you're judging is deepening the practice of compassion. It's never too late to bring kindness to the very thing that frustrates us. So that's where when we do the metta practice, the loving kindness practice, we are not only learning to open our hearts to, with, with softness and, and, and tenderness uh, in that practice, but the idea is that it begins to suffuse your mindfulness practice so that um, the mindfulness, as we've been saying, is a kind awareness or a loving awareness. It's not a sterile awareness. There's a friendliness that meets the moment. And in that, we are cultivating friendliness first towards ourselves and then towards others and then towards life and even beyond that. Many levels of loving kindness that we, uh, that we can experience. First, want to share with you uh, loving kindness towards ourselves. And I'll, this is something that I do share from, uh, from time to time on retreats and in, in, uh, in these days, um, these past few years. Um, a loving kindness practice that I hit upon that was really powerful for me. You might just try it for yourself. You know, when you do the loving kindness as we've been doing, you say the phrases, may I be safe, may I be happy, may I be healthy, may I be peaceful, or whatever phrases you use. And you're just directing it towards yourself and then you go to, as we've been doing, benefactor and through the different categories. And on one retreat a number of years ago, it was about 20 years ago, a little bit more than that now, uh, I was doing a six-week period of loving-kindness practice. And the first week was towards myself. And um, I was doing it, I'd be safe, happy. It was going, it was okay. It wasn't great, but it was okay. But it wasn't great. <laughs> and about halfway through this week, I, somebody came to my mind who I knew really loved me. I didn't know why, but it was clear this person really loved me. And the thought came to me, this would be so much easier if I could just see what they see. And then I magically connected the dots and asked myself, well, what do they see anyway? Why, why do they love me? And that's when I hit upon this, this practice that I want to share with you. So just try it yourself. Go inside and bring to mind somebody or some being. It can be a pet, it can be a child, it could be a dear friend, it could be someone even from your past if no one comes to mind uh, from your present. Just somebody who you share or have shared a really loving, sweet connection with. And imagine them right here, right in your consciousness. Just uh, see their smiling face back at you. Oh, thanks for picking me. And just feel first that connection that you share, how sweet, the unique connection that we share with every being in our life. Each one is a unique permutation. Just uh, delight in that connection. And now for a few moments, just imagine inhabiting their reality 
and seeing through their eyes who they see when they're with their dear friend. Why do they enjoy you so much? What things about them touch you? Just check it all out. Maybe your kindness, your friendliness, your care or intelligence or creativity or playfulness. Just take it all in. All the things about them that touch you or the things about you that touch them. And just see from their vantage point if this being, their friend, deserves to be treated well and kindly. Of course, that's all they would wish for you. Oh, may you just see all the goodness inside you. See what I see. And now imagine your consciousness floating back from their vantage point and let it come right back, right inside your own body. And from the inside, stay connected to who, they, who you see, who they see. And wish yourself well. May, may you really be happy, or may I, whichever one feels right. Just sharing all the goodness inside. Just see who you are and wish yourself well. Okay, and now you can open your eyes if you like. If you even just got a glimpse of what your friend sees or saw, that's enough, that's a start. You can't pretend you don't deserve kindness anymore. I have a a pillow uh, that my, my wife Jane gave me, it's in our, uh, in our living room. It says, my goal in life is to be the kind of person my dog thinks I am. <laughs> because your dog, you're not trying to impress your dog. They love you no matter what. Yeah. Just see yourself through others' eyes. We're usually the last ones to see. You know, if I, I often say this, if you met somebody, say you met somebody who really understood you, who appreciated your taste, who liked your sense of humor, who really understood where you were coming from, your, your hopes and your fears, how would you feel about meeting someone like that? Wouldn't it be great, somebody who really, really gets you? There's one person that gets every joke that goes through your head. Only one. <laughs> Unfortunately, they're right inside your skin. But if you met yourself from the outside, you would be thrilled. You'd be saying, where have you been all my life? It's just, uh, Albert Einstein has this, this phrase, we live in an optical delusion of consciousness. And we can't see who we are from our own internal vantage point. But who you are shines through to everybody who just loves and appreciates you. Start seeing yourself in that way. That's what the metta practice is about. And as you can experience that more and more, then you also can see others in that way too. Because when we're not so preoccupied with how we're doing, we can start to appreciate everybody in that same way. So loving yourself is really the seed of loving others. Because then you can just tune in, oh, who's there anyway? When I saw that in myself, I saw what my my friend saw in me, it wasn't like I was blown away, you are the most amazing human being in the world. It was just, you know, you're really okay. That was it. You know, you're really a good guy. Oh, wow. 
You don't have to be a saint. You don't have to be somebody extraordinary. Just a good human being that wishes others well and wants to wake up and wants to grow. That applies to everybody here. You wouldn't be here otherwise. So loving yourself, connecting with others, and another level of love. I'm just looking at the time, but I'm going to go for it anyway. Uh, another level of love that I really want you to appreciate is the, um, how, how the Dharma has touched you. A lot of times this practice can, be, can seem a bit sterile, cool, okay, in-breath, out-breath, in-breath, out-breath. Where's the juice? Where's the heart? And I know Devin gave a, a beautiful talk on faith uh, the other night, and I talked a little bit about it at the beginning. The heart quality, it moistens the whole deal. And it's important to get in touch with that heart connection to the Dharma. And I'll share a story some of you have heard, uh, know if you've sat with me, um, where I got in touch with this in my own, my own practice many years ago when I was practicing with, um, I had been practicing Vipassana for a couple of years and I had the opportunity to sit with Ramdas, who I, I think I, I mentioned to you was really uh, a key figure in, in my life. And uh, he was doing a small class in, in New York City and I was having an interview to see whether I could uh, be part of this, this class by invitation only. And he knew that, uh, I, I told him that I was, you know, by that time a, a Dharma practitioner or um, uh, into Vipassana and it was my practice and it was the one thing that I, that I could trust and, and believe in. But this class was a kind of uh, bhakti devotional class chanting and mala beads and you know Sri Ram Jay Ram and all kind, it was a Hindu kind of devotional class so I didn't know if it was going to work and neither did he and then he uh, he said to me um, well let me ask you um, how do you feel about Jesus do you love Jesus and I said I like Jesus <laughs> Do you love Jesus? I said, I don't know if I love Jesus. He's very inspiring, the teachings, but I don't know if I love him the way I sense you hope or think I should. He said, okay. How about Krishna? Do you love Krishna? I like Krishna. <laughs> Just the embodiment of celebration and aliveness and passion. I don't know if I love Krishna. And he said, well, um, how about God? Do you love God? And I said, you know, I was raised Jewish, Ramdas, and for however it got into my mind, when I think of God, it might have been my early children's Bible book, uh, I had this image of a very powerful man with a beard and a book and a pen saying you're going to have a good day and you're going to have a not good day. And instead of loving God, it, it kind of put more the fear of God into me. So when I think of, when I hear the word God, I think in terms of the Dharma, the, the, just the perfection of everything, the mystery of it all, and just the, 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 um, the mystery of the universe of life the truth, the way things are. And then he said, mm, okay, well, do you love the Dharma? I said, oh yeah. He said, you're sure? I said, absolutely, I'm sure. And then he said, have you ever told the Dharma that you loved it? I said, no. He said, well, go ahead. I said, what do you mean? He said, say, I love you, Dharma. <laughs> really? He said, hey, I'll say it with you. <laughs> I said, okay, <clears throat> I love you, Dharma. And he said, I love you, Dharma. 
and I said, I love you, Dharma. And he did the same. And we went back and forth like that about three or four times until one time I actually felt it. And I said, I love you, Dharma. And uh, tears started rolling down my face, at which point he said, oh, there's hope for you yet. (laughs) And I ended up doing the class. But I think it's a very important thing that each of us feel that connection, how much we love the truth, whether you call it the Dharma or God or the mystery or whatever, there's something in you that you've not been able to ignore that's brought you here. Even stronger than all your doubts and your fears and your smallness and your judgments and all of that, there's something very deep that's been like a homing device. In whatever way, whatever words you use, get in touch with how much you love the Dharma or how much you love the truth or how much you love life and are touched by it. Because that gives you energy to really explore and open and trust and you're held in that space. That still, however, is not quite the fullness of love, which will lead to the, the full expression of the loving heart. Uh, that leads to the third aspect because loving the Dharma is still me loving the Dharma and there is a duality there. But when there's no more separation and it's just life loving itself and we're not in the way where there's true understanding of emptiness, the empty nature of phenomena, that's the deepest form of love. Then the natural expression of love shining through us, which leads to the wisdom factor. Non-delusion, wisdom, seeing clearly. And you've probably gotten a taste of it. Every time you see your mind, see your thoughts and don't take ownership of them, or see your body, feel its aches and pains and its sensations and all, and don't take ownership of of them, but just see the selfless nature of reality, that is non-delusion, where you're not in the way Remember the last time I talked and asked you to uh, think of yourself as a verb, not a noun. That instead of having life as something that happens to me, it happens through me. It's both. It's happening to you, that person, body that people call you. And there's a whole other level where you're not running the show and you see the selfless nature of reality. That's what real freedom is, where you let go of the illusion of control that you never had in the first place. You have input, you have strong intention, but in uh, removing the agency when it's not there, uh, there's a real freedom in that you are uh, just an expression of life that's connected with all life around you. See, And I wanna share with you just one, uh, one beautiful uh, passage that I love. Another way to see yourself. This is from Lewis Thomas, a wonderful biologist who wrote um, Lives of a Cell many, many years ago. He says, I didn't read this, did I? No. 
A good case can be made for our non-existence as entities. We're not made up as we'd always supposed of successively enriched packets of our own parts. We are shared, rented, occupied at the interior of our own cells, driving them, providing the oxidative energy that sends us out for the improvement of each shining day. Our mitochondria, and in a strict sense, they're not ours. They turn out to be little separate creatures, replicating in their own fashion, privately, with their own DNA and RNA, quite differently, quite different from ours. Without them, we would not move a muscle, drum a finger, or think a thought. Mitochondria are stable and responsible lodgers, and I choose to trust them. But what of the other little animals similarly established in my cells, sorting and balancing me, clustering me together, my centrioles, basal bodies, and probably a good many other obscure tiny beings at work inside my cells, each with its own special genome, are as foreign and as essential as aphids and anthills. My cells are not the pure line entities I was raised to think of them as. They are ecosystems more complex than Jamaican Bay. I like to think that they work in my interest, that each breath they draw for me. Perhaps, though, it is they who walk through the local park in the early morning, sensing my senses, listening to my music, thinking my thoughts. You are an ecosystem. fact I love Wes Nisker uh, put in his book, Buddha's Nature. Right now in your mouth, there are more microorganisms, living beings, than have been humans since the beginning of time. Chew on that. (laughs) And in your stomach, there's way more. And you need them. You are an ecosystem. What a freeing way to walk through life. You're not separate at all. It's just an illusion. And to see through that separation, to truly see that you don't have to take ownership, you don't have to take credit, you don't have to take blame, All you need to see is the selfless nature of this body-mind process that follows its own laws, that there's nowhere in there that you can point to and say, that's me. You are this flow of life, of energy, in a very amazing pattern with a history, but is continually evolving and changing. So non-delusion, that is seeing clearly what's here, not getting spaced out by the, uh, the neutral, and also seeing clearly the selfless nature of experience. Every moment that you are mindful, you are cultivating these three. If it's a pleasant moment and you don't grasp, if it's an unpleasant moment and you don't push away, if it's a neutral moment and you are here for it and see clearly and not identify with your experience, you are sowing the seeds for happiness, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, generosity, kindness, wisdom. Every single moment that you're mindful don't underestimate those moments that you've put in today or these days. This is how awakening occurs. And as the Buddha said, those moments of mindfulness create the condition for the deepest kind of awakening and freedom. So I'll, I'll close with one of my favorite passages. Uh, actually, I shared a little uh, uh, phrase in it uh, earlier. This is from uh, Shantideva, uh, the Bodhisattva's, uh, the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life, the Dalai Lama's Bible, basically. This is what we're 
involved in this miracle of awakening. As a blind person feels upon finding a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death, the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. The tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life. The bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life. The cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated. The sun that dispels darkness. The butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you very much for your attention. Some time for walking and one last sitting with chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.